Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Oliver Traldi is joining me today. He's a PhD student at Notre Dame in philosophy, a writer for various outlets, and currently a writing fellow at Heterodox Academy. Thanks for joining me, Oliver. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm going to start this conversation with a sort of jacuzzi, which is, are you now or have you ever been a member of the intellectual dark web? Yeah, so I think the answer to that uh, is yes. Um, although it's it's funny at the time, uh, at the time when the when the term intellectual dark web first came about, I made a tweet that said something like, um, I, I, I don't consider myself a member of the intellectual dark web or of any other group. Um, I'm just a guy on the internet who's always right. Um, and uh, that's still basically the way I think about myself. Um, but uh, I'm less strident now about, it would be completely natural for somebody to group me with, with some of these things. And, you know, Quillette was the first outlet that I wrote for. And the, the first piece that I wrote was um, a defense of Rebecca Tuvel when she was being canceled by, you know, some of these jokers uh, in my field um, for an article comparing transracialism to, uh, to being transgender um, and, uh, you know, comparing gender to uh, Rachel Dolezal. Uh, and so I think it, it's natural uh, to think of me as a member of the intellectual dark web. But I have this running joke on Twitter where whenever anybody says anything remotely controversial, I just say, welcome to the intellectual dark web, because eventually that was kind of how it started feeling, right? Eventually everybody realized that we're, there was something to this notion that um, there's a kind of stifling orthodoxy in contemporary intellectual culture, especially in the academy, but also outside the academy and in the kind of, also in the kind of wonky culture of, of Vox, you know, and of, of uh, you know, democratic political campaign operatives and David Shore getting canceled and things like that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, to me, it's kind of like everybody's in the, the dark web is the dark is, is crowding out the light now. Um, but it's, you know, the, the dark, the, the metaphor is wrong. Like the, the dark is the light people kind of thinking for themselves. So I think it's good. So I'm going to make a, another dumb joke that, uh, I will pretend as a provocation, which is um, some might claim, um, you know, for those unfamiliar, I'm cribbing this uh, famous remark from who said this about the Holy Roman Empire, um, that it is neither intellectual nor dark nor a web. <laughs> um, what would you say to that? So, I mean, I think what I'm what I'm getting at there, I mean, I'm partly just being silly and opportunity have said that at least the dark part is misleading because all of these people have platforms. Mm -hmm. The web part is misleading because, you know, they're often only tenuously connected to each other. Right. And maybe the intellectual part is misleading because a lot of them are more pundits than actual intellectuals or something like that. I don't know. These are, these are various criticisms you've seen. Um, yeah. You've seen raised. So, you know. Yeah. And I think depending on, again, depending on how there are these very narrow and very broad ways to construe the intellectual dark web, right? When it comes to the people who were kind of originally written about in Barry Weiss's New York Times article and mentioned kind of by whatever it was, uh, Eric Weinstein on the on the Sam Harris podcast or whatever the term came up. Um, I have a lot of qualms. Um, I, you know, it's like whatever. Uh, I think it's George Costanza's 
uh, father in Seinfeld, you know, I got a lot of problems with you people and you're going to hear about it. So, I, you know, I'm always reviewing their books and saying that they're doing things wrong and stuff like that. Um, I think that depending on how we uh, cut up the terms in intellectual dark web, you know, if we think of it as kind of a dark web of ideas, um, well, then it, that's not really very good, right? Because a dark web is like where you buy immiserated children in order to like cut them up and stuff, right? Um, it, it's not, the dark web is not like, okay, of course you can also get like fun psychedelics, but in general, it's like a criminal enterprise where people can like pay other people to assassinate people like that. So I think a lot of people right away were kind of like, I don't understand why, you know, our ideas are correct. We don't need to be associated with like, you know, criminal activity or whatever. Um, and then, um, yeah, you know, on the intellectual side, there's a wide range, right? Like um, there's, um, I think probably the lowest, and I don't mean to take pot shots at anybody else, but, um, you know, there's on one side, there's like Dave Rubin, um, who there's a meme of him, one of the other intellectual dark web people or somebody like that was on his show. And they, they were kind of talking to him for a few minutes and he just kind of stared at them and said something like, uh, you know, my mind is in recovery mode after taking in all these high level ideas, right? Um, and so to a certain extent, you know, it might just be people who don't really think very hard and haven't really had ideas before. Um, but I think there's also, um, there's also a side of it that has, that has a real kind of core of interesting ideas, some of which are really quite heterodox. Um, so one of the potentially offensive ideas that I came into contact with early on when I found Quillette, I think this would have been in late, late 2015 or so, um, is the idea of genetic confounding. So the idea of environmental confounding is very familiar where um, you say, oh, here's this thing that I think is caused by genetics. And somebody says, no, 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 no. Um, this is actually caused by socioeconomic circumstances, right? You can't just leap to genetics. You can't just leap to innate characteristic um, because you've done these studies, you haven't actually controlled for the environmental variables, right? You haven't controlled for income. You haven't controlled for family structure. You haven't con controlled for discrimination, bias, lead, you know, lead in the piping of the apartments or whatever. Um, you haven't controlled for all these things. And so you can't, you can't make a genetic hypothesis. And so the idea of genetic confounding is just the flip side of that. You just say, okay, you did this study about these things, but you actually didn't study genetics. You didn't control for the genetic factor. So you similarly have not provided like a robust methodology to prefer your hypothesis. Um, and the parallelism of those two critiques, uh, when I first came into contact with this idea, really struck me because I had only ever come into contact with one of them, despite the fact that they're kind of like formally identical, right? Um, and so I do think uh, at least the early intellectual dark web there was like a small set of core ideas that were interesting, were genuinely heterodox, and which a lot of people outside of these places genuinely found, you know, problematic in the kind of, you know, smelling salts sort of way that, that we see people um, going through online when they encounter ideas that they want to hear about. Um, so that's, I've given you the high and the low. I've given you the, the pro and the con there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, as sort of an aside that, um, <clears throat> relates to something I think you brought up before we started recording. I don't know if you read um, Freddie DeBoer's book um, about inequality in education mm -hmm. um, that came out last year, which I mean, which I reviewed for a small outlet, The Bellows, which you've also written mm -hmm. for. Yep. Um, yep, yep. 
And, you know, it's... See, there, there's and, a question. Is the Bellows an IDW outlet? Like, who, <laughs> right, who, knows? Right, right. who knows? What counts as what? I have no idea. Yeah. And I mean, I think what's interesting about Freddie's book is that he, I don't think he would ever be grouped with this crowd, but, um, you know, he does have a, a, he stakes out a position in that book, which is um, the, called The Cult of Smart, which is both, mm-hmm. I mean, which is in a sense, contrary to, to both of the standard positions about genetics and IQ, because on one hand, right. he, um, you know, he essentially rejects the um, Murray sort of bell curve um, hypothesis mm-hmm. in the sense that he he doesn't um, look at it through a racialized framework and mm-hmm. thinks about um, genetic variation and heritability and IQ as as a matter of individual variation rather right. than variation between groups. Mm-hmm. So he's he's essentially um, looking at that issue for, in a way that is contrary to the small contrarian faction that you know still. Um, reads and cites the bell curve but at mm-hmm. the same time he's just by discussing that at all <laughs> he's right. essentially and particularly by discussing the idea that and there's any kind of um genetic issue that needs to be taken into account when you think about um educational policy right. he's basically going against almost the entire establishment um so you know well, yeah, the I, entire, I, what you mean is the kind of the entire progressive media political yeah. establishment, sure. right? Certainly not the entire establishment of behavioral geneticists, right? Absolutely right, right, right. Freddie, Freddie would be completely main, Freddie's positions are completely mainstream. Um, maybe yeah. not his policy positions, who knows, but the position that we can say something very certain about individual differences in IQ mm. and that we either should be uncertain or should be, you know, skeptical um, yeah, perhaps I uh, I think this one is a little bit cloudier because people sometimes don't say what they mean on on the on the group differences issue. But that's a completely mainstream position against behavioral right. geneticists. And in fact, it's very hard to find any behavioral geneticist who would say that there is not a strong genetic determination of individual intelligence. Um, and so it's it's really funny when this becomes a heterodox position, especially among the um you know i walk around even here in south bend i walk around town and i see these kind of like rainbow colored signs where there's all these like exhortations to you know welcome people from other places and believe women and stuff like that and one of them is like um trust the science or something like that well people are very selective about about which science they trust right and when it comes to the science of um you know the scientific consensus on uh genetic influence on individual aptitude um, there's a lot of people who who just are are not going to believe a poll of of behavioral geneticists for whatever reason, um, and that's not that's not saying that they necessarily should either. Just that it's just one of these many tensions, um, kind of in this whatever we want to call it. I guess some people are calling this whole kind of formation critical race theory now, which doesn't make very much sense to me. Wesley Yang calls it the the successor ideology, which. I kind of like because it sounds like it sounds cool to me, but it might not be the best name for other reasons. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so yeah, those are my those are my thoughts on Freddie. You know, and Freddie has been Freddie was has been a Slate Star Codex comment, commenter for for years, right? So Freddie has always been involved with talking to people who other other people with his views, um, even the heterodox views, might not always be willing to talk to. Um, and I think for me, one of the things that differentiates 
um, some people from others within these within contemporary intellectual culture is just kind of like, do people have pronounced reactions of disgust at certain kinds of ideas or do they try to talk them out and come up with counter arguments, right? Um, and, uh, you know, people in my spheres, you know, like a heterodox academy, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of us, well, maybe not us, because I'm not sure I think so, but a lot of people say, oh, we need to, this is all because we teach people the wrong way in college, right? We need to, when they're in their formative years, we need to have a better way of showing them like how great free inquiry is and how they don't need to be disgusted by ideas that they discuss like that. Um, and I don't know about that. Sometimes I think that's too optimistic, right? Sometimes maybe, maybe this is also genetic, right? Like maybe some people are just kind of wired to be disgusted at ideas they don't like. And other people like me are like, you know, whatever on the spectrum or whatever it is and kind of don't have any issues with, with ideas. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of going back to Freddie, I mean, I think he um, he's kind of a good example of somebody who's never exactly grouped with this um, this sort of cadre of people. And so he wasn't part of that kind of pseudo event that was created by the Barry Weiss New York Times piece. But, right. you know, he is he is at least an example of maybe the the potential of this kind of thinking to um, to introduce uh, seemingly ideologically uncomfortable positions that. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and my sense is, unfortunately, in part because of his cancellation, which responded not not to his heterodox views, although that was a sort of factor in the lead up to it, but to his probably sort a of, causal factor, yeah. um, to his sort of, um, you know, highly public self-immolation through a false accusation on Twitter, right. um, <clears throat> which essentially gave people a credible reason to dismiss everything he said yeah. from there on. Um, you know, I, th I think it did mean the book was, was essentially ignored. It didn't, it didn't really, um, it, it didn't really get that widely reviewed. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, I, and he really carefully calibrated it to kind of preempt a lot of the expected criticisms, mm -hmm. um, especially the idea that he would be tied to, you know, quote unquote, race science and so on, right? So he very carefully explains the difference between an argument for individual variability and you know variation among groups. But nevertheless, he essentially just got kind of ignored by at least the major sort of media outlets. And that meant it, you know, I think there were some interesting discussions about the book, but it, it didn't quite make the, the splash that it, it perhaps should have. Yeah, I basically agree with that. Um, and I think one thing, this probably wasn't exactly where you were going with this, but one thing that it speaks to is kind of incentives, right? When you, and I found this with my own writing, when you're careful and you say, I'm going to, I anticipate your objection, right? When you're, what we try to do in philosophy, I anticipate this objection. Here's my counter argument. I anticipate that. Here's that, right? Usually the piece is kind of a dud, right? Like nobody, it doesn't get shared. For something to for something to really make an impact, often you need to like mess up in an ambiguous way, right? You need to write something that is going to get other people mad at each other about what you've done. Um, and this is it's a very odd feature of the viral environment, which is not, I think, the fault of you know whoever the successor idiot, but is more the fault of like not even the fault. It's a feature of human psychology, and it's a feature of whatever algorithms, aggregation mechanism, things like this, things that you've written about, um, uh, about the way social media works and things like that. Um, I do think that, yeah, you know, just think about Freddie as a person. Um, 
you know, one of the le- one of the sad lessons there is just like to a certain extent, like when you take these sorts of positions, you, you can't give anybody you can't give anybody an excuse, right? And this is something with my social media use, it can be quite stressful. Um, and uh, you know, I'm still on Twitter. Um, I need to find a wife somewhere, uh, but you know, you have to watch yourself constantly because if you give if you give people any excuse. Um, they're going to find a way to jump on it and they're going to remember it years later. Right. I wrote a piece um, recently in city journal, just a kind of like, here's why a certain argument about free speech is bad. Right. Not like, here's my view on free speech. Here's I love John Stuart mill here. Let me be the mill of 2021 or anything. It's just like a very like analytic philosophy, nitpicky. Here's an argument. Here's why I think one of the premises is false or something. Um, and uh, somebody on their Substack wrote this, like, you know, 40 paragraph response where the whole ending was about like, Oh, by the way, Oliver wrote something that I didn't like back in 2018. Here's like one sentence of one article that Oliver wrote back in 2018 that I found. And it's just like, I don't know, it's, you know, these things always come back. And if people are looking for a reason to hate you, um, if you're writing constantly and tweeting constantly, they'll find it. Um, and yeah, I definitely think with, and probably we do that to, to other people as well. You know, um, there's certainly people who I'm happy to say, oh, they get money from, you know, Chevron or whatever. I don't need to talk to them. When really, I, I have other reasons that I don't want to talk to them. I just want something clever to say about it. Um, or Shell Oil or whoever it was in Nicole Hannah. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the sad things about social media. You just can't, you can't ever give people an excuse because that'll be like, you know, it's like Freddie said in his piece, in his most recent piece, right? It's like high school. You do one thing wrong and suddenly like, suddenly like you're the kid who spilled his drink all over himself in the cafeteria or whatever. Right. Um, and nobody lets you forget it for four years. And that's just, that's the way these, these things are. Um, and, uh, I think it's a sad thing about social media in general, um, that like your entire life can suddenly be like that. Um, and that people will never forget basically. I mean, I'm curious, um, what you think about my sense is there's kind of this cottage industry and interestingly on the left in sort of left media, and the examples I think of are, um, I mean, I think my, the late Michael Brooks had a whole book that was kind of supposed to be a takedown of the IDW. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, if you look at like current affairs, it seems like at least for a while, they were running just like endless articles yeah. against various of these figures. Um, I think Jacobin somewhat too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm kind of curious how you would explain the the need for... Um, various of these left media outlets over the past several years to kind of focus on this particular formation as the object of their critique and why it it developed into this weird cottage industry that in a way paralleled the cottage industry of the IDW itself or sort of this odd um, contrarians to the contrarians or whatever. In a way, it's very symbiotic, right? Like, especially for, I write negative book reviews, right? Like Nathan Robinson and I both write negative book reviews and um, it, it, people like reading the negative negative stuff. They like the negativity. They like the back and forth. They like taking a side. Um, so in a way, these relationships can be very symbiotic, just like, um, you know, Trump helped the DSA and Trump helped some of the social justice causes, right? And they helped him in turn, mutual radicalization, right? Um, so there can be these symbiotic relationships across apparent disagreements when you look at what people's actual interests are, whether they're economic interests or electoral interests or whatever. Um, uh, but yeah, certainly material interests don't 
always line up with with stated things and you can have you can have kind of you can be in a working relationship with people who you're working against in another sense um with regards to the the left takedowns i mean i i don't have any particular reason to think that um well actually i can't say that can i i was gonna say that i don't have any particular reason to think any of them were in bad faith um most, you know, most people, I think, do believe, you know, when you read a given review of Jordan Peterson's book, gen, you know, generally it seems like, oh, this person really doesn't like Jordan Peterson, thinks he has bad ideas. Um, and maybe maybe they don't like him so much that some of their critique is clouded, but like it's genuine, at least. Um, but then I was going to actually think, um, I get, you know, not to get personal or whatever, but I think Freddie mentioned in one of his pieces that, um, you know, that Nathan Robinson had written him an email about how great this book, The Cult of Smart, was. And then the review was like a takedown review. Um, and I think that does show kind of just like, and, you know, some of these, I'm not somebody who has any real understanding of like branding, how to present myself, things like that, right? Like I just sort of like come up with ideas. Sometimes I don't even remember like what positions I've taken like last week or something like that. Um, uh, in general, my audience is like a bunch of people who like watching me kind of like play with ideas and then a bunch of people who like that I'm kind of like willing to play with ideas that uh, they that other people might find offensive um but that I thought was interesting that there was this kind of um you know maybe when you're actually engaging with the material it seems good to you but then when you think about sort of like how it might be received and what people might say on social media and things like that um then you start to worry a little bit about your audience, right? And about, and it's not, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not somebody who has, you know, like a cork board with, oh, this money came from like the Ford Foundation, which came from the CIA or whatever. I don't know about any of that stuff. It could be very, you know, it could be whatever. It could be, you know, your friends who you're going to a party with in a few days, right? It could be you'll you think you'll have fewer subscribers, but it's just a bunch of people. You know, it's just normal people. It's not the CIA or whatever. Um, it could be oh, you know, like the girl you like really hates Freddie, and you're trying to impress her, right? Um, the interesting thing, you know, the, the exact nature of the material incentives are not something that I'm. That's not the sort of thing that I'm good at understanding. Um, the thing that's interesting to me is sort of like um, to a certain extent, there's a group of people who seem to think. They go one way, and then there's this just gradually growing group of people who seem to think that the material incentives are actually going very much in the other direction. Um, and this is one of the interesting things about Substack, that there are these, there are these people who you wouldn't have anticipated um, who kind of start to be smelling a little bit that there's, that there's money and an audience um, saying the sorts of things that they thought they had to keep to themselves, or even not like, I don't even know how much these people's views have changed, but associating with, with different kinds of people in some cases. Um, and, uh, and you have these weird combinate, right? Like um, take, uh, take Matt Brunig, right? Uh, maybe like eight years ago, Matt Brunig had a great takedown of something he called like identitarian deference, um, which is, you know, kind of like standpoint, what in academia we might call standpoint. Um, and when, you know, in a way the, the biggest IDW event, the, the, uh, the event that I think brought most people, the most people to the IDW was the firing of James Damore um, from Google for writing a memo again of just like straightforwardly, here's what scientific consensus on sex differences in, you know, in interests in, in, you know, systematizing versus empathizing sort of thing. Um, and 
when that happened, Matt Brunig wrote a post that was like, um, it's, you know, labor, people who like labor shouldn't like that he was fired for just like stating his mind um, sort of thing. Um, so I think in a lot of cases, there are these people who are kind of like already expressing these views to a certain extent, but are just kind of now starting to see that there can be this formation. Um, and to me, I think it's good. It's good for the IDW to have a bigger tent. It's good for the IDW to have people who are more explicitly concerned with economics, both kind of socialist and libertarian. Um, and uh, I think it's good for it to move out of, you know, five years ago, uh, most things on Quillette were like, here's, you know, here's the actual science of race. Here's the actual science of sex. You know, yet another article about this, another article about that, right? Like very much anti, very, very hardline heterodox um, and kind of, you know, the opposite side of the culture war um, from what you would think the progressive line would be. Um, and I think it's good, it's good for whatever the IDW is becoming or this new substack grouping or whatever. It's good that there's a bigger tent. It's good that there's a lot of different kind of people in it. Because if you think about it, there are many more viewpoints outside of the progressive consensus than there are inside of it. And people in intellectual life are generally curious people. They like playing with ideas. They like changing their minds. Um, and eventually, you're just going to end up with most most of your views being outside of, of what the mainstream thinks. Yeah, so this kind of, I mean, this goes probably to my idea that I raised before we started talking, before we started recording of just, um, you know, it seems like whatever the sort of IDW event or pseudo event was that uh -huh. spilled out of that Barry Weiss profile that, you know, then like consumed a lot of sort of culture war debate. I mean, mostly very incestuous intramedia sort of stuff right. that the majority of people wouldn't really know or care about. It seems like whatever that was has now kind of morphed into the Substack um, controversy or pseudo controversy, which, you know, is is a bit different in that it, um, I think it's it's framed in a less abstract way, mm -hmm. right? And that's, I think what's what was sort of a little bit limiting about the early... IDW debate was it, it sort of um, revolved around these seemingly abstract sort of procedural propositions, right? About, um, okay, well, you know, uh, there are these, um, there's this increasing drive to conformity that's, um, you know, not allowing certain opinions to be openly discussed. And therefore we have to kind of band together as this group of people who um, who will advocate for collectively advocate for um, the possibility of discussing these positions, and but but it always you know and this is why the whole like well it's not really dark um, uh, retort often came up and this was one of Nathan Robinson's standard criticisms I think of like well you know they're always saying that they're suppressed and marginalized but in fact like look at how, look at all the platforms that they have. Anyway, so, you know, so that was often like seemingly a kind of fruitless debate because it ended up being quite abstract and procedural. The Substack debate, I'd say, to the extent that we could call it a debate, is interesting because it's actually quite concrete, mm -hmm. right? Um, in the sense that it surrounds this particular platform and... Um, you know, the people who uh, are thriving on this platform are not claiming that they are somehow being, um, you know, deprived of any ability to um, express their views. In fact, they're um, 
you know, currently reliant on a very specific means of disseminating right. their ideas and, and discussing certain, you know, relatively unpopular viewpoints. And um, then their opponents are put in the position of actually um, either, um, you know, reverting to that point of saying like, well, how can they claim they're oppressed if actually mm -hmm. they have so many subscribers? But you know, but then at the same time, those same people often essentially demanding that these that this whole platform be right, taken exactly. off the internet. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so it's kind of yeah. like it, it it puts their opponents in a in a more problematic and seemingly contradictory position. Yeah, when so they I, make that argument. But yeah, so I think everything everything you said is right. So yeah, so first of all, I don't think this was ever you know like this person isn't censored because we haven't successfully censored him yet, even though we're trying to was never like a very good, you know, mm. it's just like if somebody says to you, oh, you can't say that I'm trying to kill you. You're still alive, right? That doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense, right? Um, just because you haven't successfully censored somebody doesn't mean that you're not trying. Um, but I, I, I also think that what you said about, you know, these are in general quite successful people, um, people who could have um, platforms elsewhere and just have chosen not to. Um, or, you know, in various ways, the different stories, there are different kinds of pressures involved, right? You know, why did Barry Weiss leave the New York Times? Well, there were these people, you know, in the company Slack who would post hammers after her names and, you know, it's not very nice and um, she, she felt threatened by it. Um, to me, that seems like a good reason. To other people, it might not seem like a good reason. Um, why did Matty Iglesias leave Vox? I don't really know too much of the inside there. Why, why did Andrew Sullivan leave New York Magazine? You know, well, there was, they told him he wasn't allowed to write about, um, about like crime statistics after George Floyd or something like that. Um, and I think for Iglesias, it was, I mean, I, I, this is quite a ways further back, but it had something to do with the Harper's letter, right? That uh -huh. um, someone in the, in the Vox newsroom claimed to feel unsafe after yeah, exactly, seeing his name exactly. on the... The uh, yeah. list of signatures. Yeah, which was, I mean, to me, is just a completely unhinged moment. And, you know, the safety thing, I don't know, there's a lot of elements of it. The safety thing is obviously, if there is a successor ideology, you know, whatever they call safetyism is a big part of it, right? Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. But yeah, these are people who are not, you know, like me, I never could have gotten a job. At, you know, like I had no, I had no writing credits to my name and I was kind of like, you know, I had kind of failed at everything, you know, I due to like the mental illness in my twenties, I had basically like, I dropped out of law school, I had dropped out of grad school and I had quit a job and I was doing nothing. Right. And then I started writing for Quillette. Uh, so, you know, um, but now what's happening with the Substack people is, is very different. It's people going from prestige outlets, people who have articles in the Atlantic, people who write for the New York times and just saying, actually Substack is going to be better, right? It's going to be better for me. Um, it's better material for me. Uh, you know, it's going to, it might be even more money. Um, and uh, it's certainly going to be better in terms of me being able to express the, the views that I actually hold. So I think the material, the kind of material and abstract concerns are, are kind of both there. Um, you know, the other part of the Substack thing is there's always been this war, the tech versus journalism war, right? Because tech produces content and the content comes out with fewer gatekeepers, right? Um, and there are good, good and bad sides to this. Um, you know, I remember I was in Boston for the Boston Marathon bombing and for the, the closure of the city a few days later when the Sunayev brothers were running around throwing IEDs at policemen. Um, and 
national news was always like several hours behind either watching national news they, they had no idea like if you were actually in boston and trying to figure out am i going to get shot and killed tonight there's no reason to watch national news right you would watch yourself being shot two hours after it happened um on the other hand if you go to reddit they ended up misidentifying one of the people as this uh brown university undergrad who had drowned himself several weeks earlier and had never hadn't been found yet um and so there were kind of like pros and cons of both sides um and, uh, you know, I think when this really came to a head before the Substack thing was in the, the Gawker trial, um, which people, which few people talk about now, but which was, you know, the death of Gawker and the Gawker, di Gawker diaspora um, was a huge turning point in these things, right? It was in 2016. It was during the, the Republican primary that Trump won. Um, and it involved, uh, Gawker had, had always been heavily anti-Reddit. And Reddit kind of organized against Gawker, the kind of Reddit basement people. And it involved a tech billionaire, Peter Thiel, a lawsuit um, against a kind of like a journalist startup millionaire, right? Um, and so you had all these all these dynamics, uh, I think, were present present in the Gawker lawsuit. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting now because um, you know I also want to take this further back because you know almost all of the players who were discussing were at least sort of major players including going back to freddie were sort of major blogosphere figures in the early to mid 2000s um right. and so you know this is i mean i'm not saying anything but all of the big substack people actually i'm pretty much all of them right um mm -hmm. sullivan Greenwald, Iglesias, mm -hmm. um, Freddie as well. I mean, we're, we're big deal people in the um, sort of yeah. Bush era blogosphere. Mm -hmm. And then Gawker, even though it seemed to um, kind of generate um, a not quite a large number of people who seem to belong to the kind of opposite. I mean, I, I think back to your piece about the sort of guild mentality, but, right. but this kind of guild mentality, journalistic clique, um, you know, very sort of New York-centric um, kind of crowd. I mean, interestingly, Gawker was itself kind of a, a, a another product of that that sort of freewheeling blogosphere era, right? And it essentially started out as a blog, um, right. which was just Elizabeth Spears. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, like all of the Gawker people essentially, I mean, so all of these people were absorbed into the... Um, to the uh, media, right? To the, mm -hmm. the sort of legacy media in some form or another for, for a while. Um, either the legacy media or the kind of nascent, you know, Vox type um, mm -hmm. out, you know, sort yeah. of venture funded digital media outlets. But then, so, you know, so you really had this kind of efflorescence of like online writing that, that you know, kind of came to the fore in the, yeah, sort of mid aughts. And then, then you have this kind of polarization where you have basically this clique of people who I would associate with Gawker mm -hmm. who kind of become the, the sort of guild um, representatives of this sort of new media, you know, sort of digital media mm -hmm. journalist cadre um, who are, you know, essentially not, they're not journalists of the old school, right? In the, right. the sort of Don McNeil, um, you know, to think of another recent um, flare up, you know, you have these kind of journalists of the old school who are like, 
whatever sort of gumshoe like investigative mm-hmm. journalists exactly. whatever and then but then you have these gawker type people who make a make a huge um deal of their own status as journalists right mm-hmm. and they'll always like attack glenn, Gre- glenn greenwald is like not really a journalist yeah um, but in fact they're they're really exactly the same and right. i mean and if anything you know he's he's definitely got a better claim to that than, they, than most of them do but um yeah, so what's interesting is like a lot of them found this kind of foothold in this extremely precarious world of sort of venture funded, um, you know, digital media outlets, many of which sort of have have died out in recent years. Um, but they're, you know, if, I mean, so this is like where Freddie's whole it's all high school sort of um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. thing comes in where they, they've gotten some kind of foothold in in an industry which has a kind of a patina of of journalistic prestige mm-hmm. and that kind of makes them in some sense feel themselves to be the cool kids and then you have these somewhat more um you know to very extent kind of outsidery figures who um who lack that right and that's who basically yeah. they're at war with and what what substack brings up is the way that you know if I mean, you can think about it in terms of like power law distributions or something where it's like, you know, it's it's clearly just the system that, um, you know, massively elevates a relatively small number of sort of overachievers. And then right. everyone else is just um, <clears throat> very much left behind and has to really yeah. struggle to gain well, any kind of foothold. And then, you know, and then whereas in the media industry, there's a, a more, you know, it, it disguises that distribution because, you know, if you have a, a media outlet, it may be the case that, um, you know, that there are one or two writers who are bringing in the vast majority of the clicks, but that's only visible to the people who are doing the metrics. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you have the same prestige, you know, if, if you're a Vox staff writer, you know, you essentially have the same kind of status and prestige as Matt Iglesias, even if you're not, um, right. The byline, if you're not getting the same number of clicks. So there, so there are these, you know, it's, it's kind of a war between these two, um, these two distributions, right. Mm -hmm. One of which allows for a kind of insiderism that, um, you know, as long as you kind of, um, put all your effort into climbing up the greasy pole, you can sort of gain a foothold that at least gives you a little bit of this clout and prestige Mm -hmm. versus this other system, which is really just about um, getting on the right side of this very harsh power law distribution. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the power, it reminds me of OnlyFans when you describe it that way, right? Like this is why everybody, when they look at charts of OnlyFans earners, you know, there there are these success stories of women making a million dollars. And then there's, you know, 99% 99% of them don't make a cent, um, or I don't know the number. Um, the other thing what you were saying reminded me of the relationship of message board culture to the current media. So it's not just it's not just from the blogging culture. A lot of the, the younger people who were in the Gawker diaspora and kind of the weird Twitter that's associated with the Gawker diaspora came from something awful, right? I was never a something awful user, but I... I, I know some of the more problematic websites that led people to write for some of the outlets that I write for, right? So there's also feeders into these things. There's a lot of 4chan users who ended up, you know, writing meme things for Jacobite and and some other kind of much more problematic outlets. Um, and uh, in general, I think, you know, it's funny you were talking about the, the there, there was a, uh, one of the Gawker writers wrote a piece a year or two ago about, um, you know, she had done something bad at Gawker, but she wrote, she wrote this piece that involved one of the, one of the things 
in the piece was she was at her therapist and was talking about how like um, when Trump was elected, like I started getting like a vaginal pains or something. And it's just like the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, but it, the whole thing reminds me of this, like, um, you know, Michael Tracy has been on this a lot recently, but the whole, um, oh, it's so exhausting. I'm exhausted being a journalist is something and we're in constant stuff like that. Um, there really is, I mean, there really is a culture of just like feeling sorry for yourself as a journalist and, and pretending that you're doing like this amazing service that, that the world can't do without, especially, and it's especially funny coming from the people who aren't the gumshoes, but basically the people who are like, here's why grilling is racist. Here's why like wearing the wrong hat is racist, you know, and just like recycle the same take over and over again. Those are always the people who talk about how it's so exhausting, the people who basically never do any work. Um, and I think it's, it's really funny to me. I think the real story here and one that I don't understand at all is like, when did the uptake happen of this, these incredibly like irony poisoned people who were so irreverent and making fun of everything at Gawker and suddenly became, were enveloped by this democracy dies in darkness, you know, Jim Acosta kind of like mainstream crap, right? When did, like, when did that uptake happen? And when did this, when did this group congeal and sort of like what decisions were made to kind of like make certain people part of the inside and, and keep other people out? Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's obvious, just like any inside and outside, there are different rules for people on the inside and the outside. Um, when somebody, you know, you know, when Barry Weiss complains about people in her Slack typing hammers after her name, people call her a snowflake. But then, you know, you can read these, you know, like Talia Lavin had an article about people being mean to her on Twitter, where she came up with this term, uh, you know, brigading. There's always a new term, you know, like when somebody else is doing it, right? She said, I'm being brigaded on Twitter. And sociologists, there's always some sociologists who you can refer back to. Sociologists call it brigading um, when a group of people is mean to you. And it's like, well, okay, they came from 4chan, they came from this place, now we can attribute this to them. Um, so maybe part of it is just the inside and the outside, that people take the ironical view towards the people on the outside, but have the kind of safetyist view on the inside. But to me, I think there's a really interesting story here of how, how this integration happened um, and how the Gawker diaspora and it, like the something awful diaspora and, um, you know, weird Twitter and all these groups of people became um, really part, part of the mainstream um, of the media. Yeah, I mean, well, I, yeah, going back to that point about, you know, brigading and so on. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've written about with regard to, uh -huh. you know, the fact that you have, um, you know, you have these obvious kind of mob dynamics, right, which I tend to read in this kind of Rene Girard um, influenced way. But you know, when, if, if you look at the discourse on it, right, um, basically it's, you have this almost, or you had, you know, maybe it's not coming up quite as much recently or other, or maybe it's just coming up in, in a way that's so like routinized and tedious that like, I don't even notice it anymore, but you know, th this idea that um, on one hand, you know, when the things that the right complains about as sort of mob dynamics of the left, right. That the, the uh -huh. sort of, um, you know, that they describe as, as witch hunts and things like that um, are usually, um, you know, they're either dismissed or as exaggerated or they're described in a valorizing way as like, this is just average people being able to, you know, come together and express their dissent against um, the powerful, right? Um, and this, you know, you could see, I, I, came up with some examples of this last year. I think it was around um, the top, the whole like Tom Cotton op-ed thing, right? Mm -hmm. or, or when people when people on the left or, or liberals sort of deny cancel culture, they'll be like, there's no cancel culture. There's just, um, 
you know, average people being able to voice their dissent mm -hmm. from um, powerful views, right? right? But, um, but then when that sort of dissent is directed at them, it's harassment. Right. Uh -huh. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And so it, it's that they're essentially the same structurally. They're the same formations. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's the same kind of algorithmically driven um, sort of um, viral process. But, um, you know, depending on which side you're looking at it from, um, you you either valorize it and, you know, you can even go back to, um, you know, something Angela Nagel wrote about, right, that actually like before people really cottoned on to like what 4chan was really about. It was often described in these very um, positive terms, like in sort of left-wing media, mm -hmm. right? As this sort of, um, mm -hmm. you know, popular, this sort of powerful um, populist sort of movement of dissent um, that could sort of use these tools to um, to hold the powerful to account or whatever. And, and, even, and then, even early 4chan, they had, you know, they had like the, they all put on like the Guy Fox masks and made fun of the Scientologists yeah, exactly. and stuff like that, right? Like the, the that was regarded that, yeah. as cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. then, and then, you know, but then, so obviously that was totally thrown out the window, but then you saw exactly the same discourse starting to come out around like K-pop stands and like the TikTok sort of activism and so on right that that it was being described last year in exactly the same way that like the the sort of early naive take on 4chan um operated kind of in on the left of the spectrum like 10 years ago um so you know it's just this weird phenomenon where like these same just you know processes you can describe pretty objectively um get uh either either coded as um as sort of harassment or cancel culture, or as um, this kind of heroic democratic uprising, depending on which angle you're looking at it from. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this maybe leads to like a bigger question that I that I had, which is, you know, so as I think we've we've sort of um, concluded a couple of times, you know, you can only understand the emergence of the IDW as a kind of reaction formation. Um, that, that in a way develops symbiotically in relation to this kind of larger evolution mm -hmm. of liberal sort of media discourse, um, you know, and, and this kind of coalescence of, a, of an orthodoxy that we see, you know, starting to appear actually before, I mean, I think of like Zach Goldberg's, um, mm -hmm. you know, these sort of um, studies he's done of like just the frequency of certain words and phrases in the yeah, New York Times, which, yeah, yeah, they which, which he's 2011, 2012, something like that. Yeah. Right. And they, they go, so they go back before the Trump era, but then obviously it's the Trump era that really um, allows it to crystallize. So the IDW sort of emerges as a reaction to that, then various things like the sort of left for anti-IDW formations we um, we brought up kind of emerge in reaction to it and so on. So there, there are all these kinds of um, these uh, polarities that emerge kind of as almost like a chain reaction. And so, um, but anyway, you know, the point I wanted to make is that um, what really tied these people together was a sort of agreement on a negative point, which is that, you know, for whatever reason, whether they were, you know, Eric Weinstein or Dave Rubin or um, Ben, Sh you know, Ben Shapiro, who I was one of the people I never really understood as part of this group because he's really just like a, right. a standard conservative. But but what they didn't like was, um, what, they, what they came together on was a, um, 
a desire to repudiate this particular evolution, which mm-hmm. they basically framed as an evolution away from a kind of a certain kind of procedural liberalism that they all to very sense agreed on the value of. Although even there, I'm a little bit confused because I understand someone like Sam Harris is basically a kind of advocating like a technocratic um, autocracy. But anyway, that's a whole other, um, that's a whole other like uh, question. But, but so supposedly they all agree on um, the idea that, you know, there's been a, a drift away from, um, a certain sense consensus around like procedural liberalism mm-hmm. and and that was um, the thing that brought them together right so my main criticism I would say of this group or at least of most of the people in it is that and has been that I don't think they really have any adequate explanation of why this happened um, and a lot of them seem to think that if you simply assert the need to um, return to liberalism, mm-hmm. then somehow by asserting it enough, you will um, you will you will be able to um, kind of claw your way back to that. So you know, so that's kind of a criticism both on the level of their analysis, which is that I I you know, and I, I've I've written extensively about my own analysis, which is sort of. Um, based on, you know, it's not based on technological determinism per se, but a sort of complicated systemic interplay of Mm -hmm. technological and economic developments, you know, that that sort of materially determine um, these shifts in discourse. um, And that you can't really, um, you can't really um, attack or get a hold on what's happened in the sort of mainstream liberal consensus and shift away from basic kind of consensus around procedural liberalism without addressing these deeper material factors. That's kind of been my criticism. Um, But then, you know, on the other hand, like my, and you know, I'm not even sure that like, I'm gonna go along with them in saying that it's desirable to return to some Mm -hmm. version of that, you know, but regardless, I would say, if you do want to do that, like, I'm, I'm not sure they've ever offered a very clear or realistic explanation of how you achieve that. So, I mean, I guess I'm just curious whether you think this critique is fair. Yes. And, and more broadly, um, do you think that there's been any, you know, shift towards like a recognition of those shortcomings as this sort of, um, you know, as, as that critique has evolved? Um, or do you think there's still among most of these figures, a, a tendency to be stuck in that kind of position of, of not really knowing how to oppose the thing they agree that they need to oppose. Yeah. So the first time, so I'm probably, in terms of people who are have kind of been in or around the IDW for a while, I'm one of the most materialist. And that shows you that they're not very materialist at all, right? Because I have, at best, a kind of flirtation, you know, I had a kind of summer fling with materialism last summer. Um, uh, the, so the, the first piece that I wrote kind of about this kind of question was n- not, not a great piece, but it was called a postmodernism isn't playing around anymore. This was back when I used the term postmodern a bit more when Jordan Peterson was a bit more active and people talked about, it. um, and it was basically about the idea that, you know, like in the sixties in Derrida and, you know, in, in, even in Foucault and in a lot of these other people, the whole thing of postmodernism had been like, nothing is really tied down to anything. Nothing is necessary. Everything's contingent. So you can just kind of like play around with stuff, right? This very playful ideology of, um, you know, free play, jouissance, infinite 
infinite deferral of ultimate meaning and things like that. Um, and uh, that's certainly whatever the postmodernism that we have in 2021 is, that's certainly not what it entails, right? Whatever we're calling postmodernism now involves saying this for sure means something offensive, right? This for sure is bad, right? Being very, very confident about things. Um, so I kind of tried to trace that evolution there, but I didn't have like an answer. Um, I basically just raised the question. Nobody took me up on it. Um, you know, it, the only thing that was kind of an attempt. So first of all, they're highly um, idealistic in terms of like idea-based rather than material-based explanations, right? So you read Cynical Theories by Lindsay and Pluckrose. Their theory is a bunch of people read 1960s postmodernism, and then they decided to apply it to race and gender. And that was how we got the current formations of thought in contemporary life that we have. Um, and as I wrote in my review of that book, you might just wonder, like, is this at all plausible uh, as like a story of how massive intellectual change happens among like the entirety of of the kind of literary and intellectual elites of society. Um, it doesn't seem plausible to me, right? Like, it seems like it's not even a story yet. It's kind of like, it's kind of like um, if you said, uh, you know, here's the plot of Ulysses. They were in Dublin the whole time, right? Um, it kind of tells you where they are, but it doesn't tell you what happened. Um, so, so that is unsatisfactory. Um, John Haidt has a story. John Haidt tells kind of like the safetyism story, right? Like, people started like harm and Connor Friedersdorf tells the story of it too with concept creep of harm. You know, people expanded the meaning of harm. They expanded their kind of sense of vulnerability and fragility. And, uh, you know, people's people became more anxious and their sense of well-being was eroded. And this led to these ideological shifts. So that's kind of an improvement, but we might also wonder like, why did that happen? Right? Like what is it? Do people, people don't just like become more anxious out of nowhere. Um, but it might be, it might be an important part of the story. Um, on the other hand, that story makes, well, it makes a lot of sense for why are certain things happening on college campuses? It doesn't necessarily make as much sense when we're thinking about why does the Washington Post change its masthead to say democracy dies in darkness or some, you know, trite crap like that? Or why do New York Times journalists start writing about how, you know, they're being traumatized by having to, you know, having to do their jobs or whatever? Um, it doesn't necessarily tell us like it's in a way it's not big enough, right? It's not, it's not big enough for the scope of what's happening. Um, and um, so I don't, there, there's another explanation, which in a way comes from, this is a piece I'm working on for tablet. I think um, just I'm, what I'm doing for this piece is I'm just pulling together every different argument that I've seen for the idea that social justice is a new religion. Um, and it turns out there are like 20 or 25 different kinds of arguments. And when you read just one of them, you think there's probably a problem with this argument. This does this isn't like all that in, is involved in being a religion, right? When you put them all next to each other, you start to have a kind of cumulative case. Um, and so one thing that um, you know, what the Catholics say, what the what the Tradcaths say is like, um, this is just this is just like the next stage of Protestantism, right? Somehow I can't pronounce words during pandemic. Um, but this is just, um, it has this feature that it shares with Protestantism and it has this other feature that it shares. And this is just kind of like the next thing, the next thing that, that's happening. Um, and so for them, there's barely been a change. Um, there's liberal Protestantism is not, uh, is not really far removed from, you know, the successor at Yale. So that's another kind of story. Um, and then, it, you know, we might have to go back and explain why that ideology was there to begin with to be changed in this way. Um, but in terms of 
what the IDW doesn't have, it doesn't have Adolf Reed, right? It doesn't um, have uh, even someone like what, like Frederick Jameson, you know, who is writing um, about the cultural logic of late capitalism as a kind of Marxist critique of post-colonialism and things like that. Um, it doesn't really have a materialist thinker, um, or if it does, it's me, and I'm not a materialist thinker at all, right? I'm an analytic philosopher. Um, so um, I do think that it, it's the project really was always missing um, a materialist analysis. And one thing, well, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's come up um, in the kind of the new, the new grab group of of Substack people. Um, but the story would have to be, like I said, it's not the sort of story that I'm equipped to tell. It's just not the sort of thing that I'm good at thinking about. You'd have to kind of put a lot of things together, right? Um, about economic changes and technology um, and, uh, I, I don't know, maybe family structure. Um, and th- that kind of level of granularity of data is, is not something that that I really know what to do with. Um, the other point you made was about kind of just like IDW being just not really making a positive case for liberalism, right? Um, and that I think is also probably correct, right? In a way, you know, the IDW, as you said, was a was a reaction formation, right? It was quite reactionary. And and I don't say that with a negative tone, right? Like a lot of my close friends are reactionaries. I'm always falling in love with reactionary women, right? Um, the, the problem was just that as a, as a political matter, the old arguments for liberalism uh, like don't convince people anymore. Um, Some of us still think that they're good arguments, right? Um, But the old arguments for liberalism don't convince the people who left, right? And that's the people who left on the left and the people who left on the right. Um, So probably intellectually speaking, two of the things that would be best for the IDW to have produced that didn't come out of it, as far as I can tell, were just a really granular and compelling materialist analysis of where this successor ideology or whatever it is came from, and a novel defense of of um, of liberalism or even of you know small parts of it, liberal neutrality or liberal freedom or something. Um, so, of course, on the other hand, like maybe that's a lot to expect of people, right? It's just like a bunch of people online who were excited to have new platforms. Um, it's not like a group of scholars or anything. There's very few philosophers and political scientists involved. Um, so maybe that's a lot to expect. But those are kind of the things you pointed to are basically like the intellectual resources that I think we're missing from the project. Yeah. And another thing that's come up recently, I mean, so on one hand, I, you know, part of me has thought um, there's been a certain shift to maybe a slightly more strategic approach, which is based on institutions, Mm -hmm. um, which, which is another thing that I think was, was kind of missing from the original critique, right. was, um, a real understanding of like institutional incentive. I mean, even beyond the kind of broader technological and economic narrative that I guess I kind of want to offer, mm-hmm. like there's also just a level of institutional critique that, that I think is, is often missing from, from many of these accounts, just in terms of how, how these institutions function, what they're for, what the relationship between liberalism and them is and why exactly they, and concretely, they've, they've sort of changed, both in terms of how they actually function materially and also in terms of how they mm-hmm. kind of explain and justify their, their per, you know, both materially and ideologically, right? Right. Um, but 
I don't know. I mean, I think, so one of the things I've noticed that, that I don't, you know, it, it, it seems on one hand more strategic, not in a way that I want to endorse or say I really have much support for, but like, is this kind of, um, this shift towards um, trying to ban critical race theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in in certain schools and, and things like that, which I think at least strategically, and again, I don't I don't really um, want to come across as endorsing this as an approach. Um, I just I feel like I'm essentially a neutral observer of this sort of a phenomenon. But um, you know, at least it it seems to manifest a certain um, tactical shift. And yet, you know, part of why I find myself like generally. Um, kind of curious about it, but also continuing to question the the basic just analytical sort of acumen of the people involved in this is it seems like a huge amount of this um, this whole discussion is driven by this idea that this is a Marxist or a communist project, uh, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. And yeah. so if you look at, like, I guess Chris Rufo is sort of the one who's right. driving a lot of it, but, you know, if you look at Lindsay and some of the other mm-hmm. people who are most pushing this kind of stuff, um, they keep coming back to this, you know, weirdly retrograde, very kind of Cold War um, way of talking about it, which, you know, is almost the exact opposite of my whole, whatever critique I would have of, you know, if we want to call it critical race theory is, is not that it is that, right? Um, It's, it's in fact that it is itself in a a sense that I won't bother to explain in this context is it is itself actually quite reactionary um, in terms of the the way it's working within these institutions to, to actually um, prop up certain sort of power structures. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But, mm-hmm. you know, my only maybe slight um, uh, counter to, to my immediate sense that this is just kind of dumb and just obviously totally off base is that, you know, maybe there's some way that this is just a relatively cynical messaging strategy based on mm-hmm. the fact that they want to get donations from like boomer conservatives who still think in this way. Yeah. I mean, that's, but, that's the most plausible, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But but then I, I do just find the fervency which was, with which they always bring up the kind of, this is really just Marxism. Um, and as if this is some kind of expose that's going to, um, <laughs> that's going to discredit it, which again, I think goes back to this, this idea that they're not actually making a positive case for the importance of sustaining a kind of procedural liberalism within institutions. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're assuming that everybody agrees with that. And therefore, exactly, that if they yeah. prove that this is Marxist, then everybody will just say, oh, well, it must be bad because, of course, we're all liberals and therefore think Marxism is bad. Um, so it, it seems like, OK, maybe there's some strategic reason it makes sense for fundraising from boomer cons. But beyond that, it just seems like such a kind of brain dead approach. to the whole Yeah, process. You know, it's, it's interesting. I sort of consider myself a centrist on the question of the relationship of critical race theory to Marxism or, of well, you know whatever this formation, you know, let's not use the term, let's not rufo the term critical race theory here. But so for example, it's straightforward that like a, a concept like standpoint epistemology was was developed from, it's basically like stealing the idea of class consciousness and applying it to to gender, right? By feminists. Um, and then was taken and, and expanded to race and other categories. Um, so there's a sense in which the intellectual lineage is Marxist just because that's what these people were reading and that's what their inspiration was. 
Um, does that mean that it's a Marxist theory? To me, that's like, I don't know, that's a question that interests me as a philosopher, but isn't a question that should be politically interesting to anybody, right? Like, does the theory in some sense, like retain the essence of its or of its genealogical origins? This is not like a question that is important politically. It's a very abstract question about what we call different things, right? Um, and it's obvious that if you take Marxism to mean, you know, to mean anything like communism or what, right? Like you just, it's just obvious that, you know, diversity consultants at Google are not living a communist life and they don't have, they don't have an interest in, in communism, even though some of them are going to post hammer and sickles and they're going to say things on the Google Slack about, you know, how they want to the means of production or whatever. That's just part of the game, right? Like that's just part of the, it's not a real conviction, right? It's a kind of signaling. So yeah, I mean, it, it's completely, th this stuff, people already made fun of Jordan P Peterson for calling this stuff neo-Marxism. Um, but at least that had the neo in it, right? Like at least that is signaled that there was like some sort of change. People already hate the term cultural Marxism, but at least that's saying it's not the economic version, it's the cultural version. Those, you know, those I can be okay with. Just straight up calling it Marxist is, is absurd. Um, and it said, you know, in cynical theories, it must've been Helen's portions, but cynical theories straight up says, we agree with a lot of Marxist critics of identity politics, right? They acknowledge the, the existence of Marxist critics of identity politics, and they say that they made the right critiques, right? They say they made intellectually respectable and responsible critiques, and their job isn't to disagree with them. Um, they, in a sense, they believe that there can be, that there can be Marxist liberals um, uh, in the senses that were important to them for the purposes of those books, uh, for, of that book. Uh, and so it's really weird to see, um, it's weird to see this turn being taken. Um, and I don't know, I don't know exactly what the strategy is. Of course, for me, you know, I have different incentives for, than them. I'm not trying to raise money from anybody. You know, let's talk about me materially, right? I'm not trying to raise money from anybody. Um, I'm trying to get a job in academia and, you know, to talk to girls, uh, you know, in my age and, and in their 20s. And so for me, it would be much better if there were an alliance between, you know, the anti-identity politics liberals and the anti-identity politics Marxists, right? That would be a much better friendship than making friends with boomer conservatives um, by my standards. Um, but these alliances are always, you know, it can always be hard for uh, a formation of people to decide on what alliance do we want? Because within the formation of people, there's always these different incentives, right? Um, my incentives are just so different than, than James Lindsay's incentives. Um, and although to be honest, like, even if we had the same incentives, I wouldn't fucking act like James Lindsay, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's very complex. Um, what happens with these things and probably if what people call the IDW ends up being Chris Rufo, then a lot of us are not going to, we're not going to call ourselves IDW anymore. Right. Well, that even goes for Claire, right? Claire Lemon, who has always been the editor in chief of, of Quillette. And I think has always done a pretty good job. Um, a quite good job, you know, I don't, I didn't mean that to come out as like ambivalent, um, uh, you know, tweeted James Lindsay is retarded or something, right? Like there's, you know, there's um, obviously people are feeling within this grouping um, the tension between what's happening with the Rufo side um, and uh, what's kind of always been the core issues among us. Um, but it's still, even, even while that's happening, there's there's not a group of people who are saying, well, we are the Marxists within the IDW, and here's why, you know, here's why we hate um, Chris Rufo or anything like that. Um, so yeah, in terms of the future, which alliances we're going to make, um, and 
who's going to end up on the inside, who's going to end up on the outside. Um, you know, I really have no idea. Rufo is somebody who I hadn't heard of until last summer, I think. Um, whereas, you know, somebody like Claire has been in it from the beginning, right? So um, who knows what the project is? Who knows, who knows who's going to be on what side? Um, there were, in a way, these things often happen in America, at least after elections, right? There was this, after Trump was elected, there, was, there were these shifts of some people into the DSA, some Republicans becoming these never Trump Republicans, some Clinton and Trump people kind of coming together with IDW views, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, there are all these reformulations of the political side of intellectual life, right? Um, and to me, that's exciting and I like it. And I think to a certain extent, it's happening again now, right? Um, that you're going to see now this group of people that has people like Freddie and Matt Iglesias in it. And um, that's going to be one kind of like, IDW type thing, then you're going to see these like Rufo and Lindsay people. And that's going to be another kind of like IDW type thing. Um, and in a sense, you know, it, it can be a good sign. Often groups start to split apart when they win victories, right? Because they can't decide what to do next. Um, I don't know exactly what victories we've won, but maybe we've won something and I just didn't notice it. Um, so that would be good. So something I struggle with, with this whole, um, set of issues we've just been discussing and without getting too deeply into it is, um, and this kind of goes back to the lack of a, a sort of robust defense of liberalism, um, which, you know, I'm in some sense a sort of agnostic about. Um, but, you know, what I will say is that, you know, I, 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 I come to this as somebody who finds a great deal of the sort of critical race theory analysis if we just um if we just you know oversimplify it to the to the point that um ostensibly neutral procedures can mm. systemically produce outcomes that are you know reflective of certain um biases prejudices um you know racial disparate pre-existing mm. racial disparities and that perpetuate um those structures, you know, that, that to me seems almost, I mean, it's very hard for me not to see that as just indisputable as an observation. Oh like yeah. I, that's, I like, have I mean, trouble, that's just empirically true. Yeah. Right. I have trouble. Um, and so, so that level of critical race theory seems to me, I mean, I, I cannot see that as anything but mm -hmm. just straightforwardly accurate um, as an assessment. And so then the question is, um, what you know how you respond to that what you what you do about it um you know and, and i think you know my kind of going back to my my broader critique um you know is that you know when people on the left will say well these people are just conservatives i think there's a truth to that to the extent that when confronted with that observation they will simply fall back on the well people just have to work you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and work harder. And we need to reemphasize individual responsibility, which I'm not, um, you know, whatever. I mean, I think there are nuanced, like reasonable cases to made for something like that position. But, you know, to the extent that the, the response to that, um, that sort of analysis of the shortcomings of sort of procedural liberalism, as I keep calling it, is, is just, well, ultimately it comes down to individuals um that that is essentially just the classic kind of you know reaganite conservative right. position um and so you know i don't know um i i 
and and when I see the sort of current um, attack on and you know my criticism of the sort of institutional processes of the sort that <laughs> that Rufo is um, documenting is actually that they won't do jack shit. That mm-hmm. <laughs> is is actually that the um, systemic disparities that have been perpetuated in part by ostensibly neutral um, procedural arrangements do exist. And that these supposed radical reforms, my criticism would be, will not actually help, like will not actually do anything. Well, yeah, um, I mean, that's certainly one, right? Like the sort of thing that Rufo loves talking about is like, you know, he finds some document, which, you know, I, I totally believe these documents exist because people are crazy, right? Some teachers are crazy. Some diversity consultants are crazy. And this is a craziness that is in line with, you know, a, a popular way of thinking. Yeah, I believe there are schools where, you know, where like six-year-olds are taught um, to be very aware of their skin color and and white six-year-olds are taught that they're irredeemably racist and black six-year-olds are taught that they live in a society where everybody hates them. Um, I believe that these things happen. Do I, do, do we think for a second that teaching six-year-olds these things is going to like make, is going to solve like black, white income gaps? Why would it, right? Like there's no theory under which this would help any of the problems that are that are that are material right um so uh so yeah i agree with you uh i agree with you there um i think that it's it's consistent to say both that it it won't help the real problems and that it also causes other problems right like one problem is that that sort of way of teaching involves being really cruel to six-year-olds which is something that i think you shouldn't do um that seems like the biggest problem to me there um but okay, yeah. I, I sorry. I... No, not at all. I mean, that's yeah, that's pretty much my my take on all that as well. But um, so in terms of a project, I mean, it seems like maybe to try to sum things up and go back to your your sort of more future oriented thinking about you know how these um, how these things are um, evolving. You know, it, it does seem like the the coalescence around this kind of anti CRT um, struggle that you know, people like Rufo and Lindsay are, are trying to spearhead um, that, you know, that seems like one version of where, where these sort of tendencies are going. I think we've both said like, why we think that probably won't be what, you know, while the thing they're, they're describing is, <clears throat> is real. And, um, you know, I, I think it's bad for maybe different reasons that they do. Um, <clears throat> and so do you, um, you know, th- my sense is that um, that's, that's not going to be a particularly, um, you know, it's it's not going to lead anywhere particularly good. Although it might help them uh, fundraise a lot from right. from boomer cons. Um, not to you know, and I, I don't I, and I, I don't like yeah, and I don't even like using the sort of <clears throat> grifter term very much. But no, me either. You know, but I think we're we're onto something relatively concrete yeah. in that case. Um, but you know, more broadly, like, what do you see as the you know, maybe more promising or like positive projects that are uh, that are emerging out of this formation that we've been trying to describe and um, that might might actually go somewhere a bit more interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you are starting to have some ap- academics like me who were influenced by the IDW in one way or another and maybe doing work that that has some interesting relationship to the IDW project even if it's not directly in service of its political project, right? It may still be intellectually productive. It may bear some sort of interesting fruit. Um, 
you mentioned Zach Goldberg before. I think he's working on a book. Um, and he is just kind of like the expert on the roots of the Great Awakening and basically what's happened um, with these sorts of topics over the past decade. Um, so I think that's a good project. He probably won't. It probably won't be a materialist project as we as we talked about. I don't think he's necessarily influenced in that direction. Um, but so that's the sort of project that I think could bear some fruit. Just saying, clarifying more like what is this formation? What really is going on? Um, with this thing that we've always been reacting against. Um, I also noticed that uh, uh, Musa Algarbi has a book coming out. Yeah, Musa has a book we coming have, out. We've never been woke, so that, that seems like one thing to yeah. look out for. And Musa is trained both as a philosopher and as a sociologist. So Musa, Musa is great. Um, I can't say enough good things about Musa. I'm working on uh, a textbook for a course that I'm teaching on the epistemology of political beliefs. Um, which is basically, I don't know, way too ambitious, um, but is meant to kind of just look at, in part, what are what are the various sorts of arguments that are that are made about why people should change their beliefs to be, um, among other things, right? It's not a, it's not like an you know it's not a class on wokeness, right? Um, but why people should change their beliefs, including why they should change their beliefs based on disagreement with people from other identity categories or based on kind of genealogical critiques um, and things like that. Um, I don't know of anybody who has taken up the, like, oh, I'm a member of the IDW and I'm going to be like the next, you know, John Rawl <laughs> or something like that, right? Like I'm going to be the next great articulator of liberal thinking. Um, and I don't really know. I don't really know what the project would involve if somebody were to do that, if I did, if I knew what the project would involve, I would just do it myself. Um, but... Yeah, because I, yeah, and I, that is somewhere where I just think, um, you know, the to the extent that like the most public facing kind of prominent versions of it ha have now become this kind of crusade against CRT. It mm -hmm. it really does, you know, it it seems to end up going in an avowedly sort of illiberal or anti-liberal direction, uh -huh. right? Um, in the, in the sense that it's explicitly about, um, I mean, you know, it, it becomes the struggle between two sort of illiberalisms, right? Um, because it's, it's a, in a sense explicitly about not, uh -huh. um, no longer, um, treating institutions as sort of neutral, arbiters of sort of procedure, but rather as having to have some kind of sub substantive um, ideological commitments that are opposed to these other substantive ideological commitments that, you know, have to some extent become prevalent in them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's as if there's kind of a, at least on the, you know, the more, um, you know, the, in terms of the more well-known figures, that we've kind of been pointing to it. There's at least a, a strand of it that's that's become sort of overtly reactionary and kind of illiberal in its own way, in, in a way that does kind of vindicate some of the criticisms, at least of some of these figures. If that's not too unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I agree. You know what you said about the clash of illib illiberalisms. You know. Um, yeah, I think this is just something that, yeah, everybody to the, in the IDW is basically coming to grips with kind of on their own to a certain extent, just that there are um, 
I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Um, well, just at, at some points, the instinct, right? We say we don't want to be knee-jerk. You shouldn't be knee-jerk in defense of some position, but we are often knee-jerk in defense of liberalism, right? Um, you, you know, we say any of you should be aired, any, any of you should be given a platform if it can, but then we also see this hideous stuff with critical race theory and we wonder if we really believe it, right? Um, and so I think this is kind of like, um, this is an, an, an internal struggle, which is played out by some people going one way and some people going another way um, within within the IDW. Um, and one thing that I haven't seen that much of, um, I, there haven't been any like, you know, you, you can imagine at least there being like a back and forth between, you know, Quillette or Aria or one of these places versus like Rufo or Lindsay, right? Either, you know, I'm sure these things exist, you know, there are old letters of leftists arguing about whatever it is, you know, sticking to various principles versus taking extreme actions or, you know, gradualism versus, versus you know, um, versus revolution or whatever. And um, I don't see many of those debates happening explicitly within the IDW, right? Like, I don't see many like strategic conversations. Right. I mean, instead what you had was Lindsay not long ago kind of, you know, despite his having whatever sort of gone MAGA and so on, like <clears throat> he made a big deal about um, attacking what was calling like POMO cons or something uh -huh. like, I mean, I think he got into thing with my friend um, Alex Kashuda. Uh -huh. Um, oh yeah, I like you Alex, know yeah. sort of promo pomo trad or I don't know I can't remember exactly what, but you know essentially he I think he sort of needed to do that in order to um, continue to identify himself with something we could call liberalism uh -huh. as opposed to so he had to kind of stake out his right flank and um, make clear who he was who he could still differentiate himself from right right, right? Um, but. Yeah, I, I agree. There hasn't been um, a kind of robust debate about this whole, you know, I, I mean, it's been unfortunate to see, I think, how the, the whole debate about these, like, you know, these actual laws that are trying to, like, ban critical race theory in some red states and so on. You know, and you, of course, have, like, the people on the left being like, oh, well, they say they're f pro free speech. But, um, but, you know, that, of course, that position is itself, um, you know, as bad faith as the one that it claims to oppose um Sorry, because, what, because what, what do you mean oh because they're it's like they're incapable of um yeah i mean you see this with a lot of stuff right where it's mm -hmm. like um the, the same people who um kind of just ridicule the whole free speech position typically will then when they see somebody they somebody on the right infringing on free speech they'll sort of it, they'll sort of become this like um yeah, it's, a, it's like what strategic we were about defender before. of yeah. free speech, but but without any even attempt to stake out some coherent position about right. yeah, yeah, what yeah. that would entail. It's like what we were talking about before with the brigading. They just yeah. they have this new term silencing. This I, I tried to write about this mm -hmm. a few years ago, but it never was published. But you know, they say we hate the free speech argument, and then you try to shut them up, and they say they're being silenced, which sounds a lot like you're restricting my free speech, right? Right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there is just a, an unfortunate tendency towards, um, you know, just just this kind of cynical one-upmanship, basically, <laughs> that, that tends to define how debates are functioning in these spaces. Mm -hmm. That said, I mean, I do, I, I overall think, you know, the, the Substack thing is like one of the few gen, genuinely good developments. I think it does raise some interesting questions because... 
again, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a weird, um, kind of retrenchment of a certain sort of principled liberalism because it's also anti-institutional, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I would take, you know, um, liberalism traditionally understood to be heavily reliant on a range of mediating institutions, right? That, that sort of give it meaning. Whereas, you know, what does liberalism become when it's, um, when it's primarily housed within this kind of anti-institutional space where, everything is um, playing out according to power laws, as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that raises a whole bunch of questions. I mean, I, I think, again, overall, the Substack development is like salutary. And I think it, it reframes a bunch of these debates in, in terms of much more concrete questions. Um, but I'm also just kind of curious what, what happens when the advocates of procedural liberalism are primarily housed in this space that is estranged from the institutions that traditionally contained it or, or sustained it, should I say? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's most pronounced with, um, with journalism, right? With the, with the kind of journalists are now themselves some of the most aggressive opponents of the idea of objectivity and journalism, right? Um, where it's really non-journalists who are like, I wish you guys were, would go back to trying to be objective about things. And they have these, you know, elaborate, here's why objectivity is impossible or undesirable sort of. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's a question of um, this in a way it was the question that started the IDW, right? Like where, where are we going to go? Um, where is there for us? Um, it's certainly something that I feel in academia, but especially as we were talking about before, um, especially because academia has all sorts of other problems, right? Um, that make you wonder what the future of academia. Um, so so yeah, I think these things are most strongly felt by people who w- want to participate in the in institutions like academia and journalism, or maybe the arts, um, but don't have, but kind of have the old-fashioned liberal views. Old-fashioned meaning like from the '90s, not like from the 1500s. Um, and in a way, you know, sometimes when I talk about, you know, sometimes when I talk about these things on Twitter, you know, I have I get DMs from people who are just like, just leave your, just come to California. It's like, I'll get you, like, learn to learn to code and I'll get you a job. Come to California. Don't do any of this crap anymore. Um, and so there's a sort of like, um, you know, men going their own way, the, the men's rights activists. Yeah. There's sort of, I think there's a, a certain amount of like liberals going their own way um, that, uh, you know, that maybe, maybe I should have thought about. Um, right. It's, it's, the, it's exit. Right. It's um, exactly exit rather than voice. Exactly. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that is another, you know, area that we're seeing. Um, I don't know, just uh, some interesting developments, um, although, you know, quite tenuous, but um, and, and sort of ideologically heterodox ones. Right. Where I think there are just people from quite different um, persuasions who are in some way just um attempting to exit the institutions and Mm -hmm. see what they can see what they can do outside of them. Um, And I, you know, I don't know what to make of where that's going. I mean, I think Substack is itself a kind of exit and that's part of why I was saying it's kind of interesting to see these figures um, occupying the space, which is, you know, in some sense, um, you know, it is precarious because it's, uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's essentially a, a space that's enabled by, mm-hmm. um, you know, venture funded tech. 
um, enterprises and therefore is not, doesn't have deep roots in some kind of set of um, political traditions or institutional um, practices. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I guess for, I think of Substack as a kind of middle ground um, maybe because it has so many, many media people and it's made so many, you know, overtures to explicitly to media people. Um, yeah. But, you know, for me, I don't know with my academic writing, again, we said academia has all sorts of other problems, but like the, if you combine the peer review process with all, all, all the sorts of people who, who, you know, might try to get my stuff not published for, for various political reasons. Um, every time I write something academically, it's very tempting to just put up a PDF and post it on Twitter, right? Like um, I can do it instantly. I can get instant feedback. Um, of course, journalism does not have quite the lengthy and horrible processes that academic academia does, but um, for somebody who can work without editors, right. For somebody who checks their own facts and things like that um, at a certain point, you have to wonder why not, right. Why not cut out all the middle people? Why not cut out HR, right. Why not just do your own thing? If you can do it yourself, just do it yourself. Um, and um, I think in a way, if there's what's unfortunate about it is just um, kind of like you were saying before, the people who are leaving these places are often the people who were, were making the money and what they were making money for these places to do was actually the gumshoe reporting that you were talking about, right? Which doesn't make money, but which is actually the important function of these outlets. Um, Right. So it might, it might make, if the problem is just that nobody cares about gumshoe reporting anymore. And so all this stuff is happening, then it might just exacerbate the problem. I think that that's like the most, maybe that's the biggest danger that I see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's, you know, like to the extent that both universities and um, newspapers have just degenerated into sort of clickbait mill, like more clickbait mm-hmm. mills, um, you know, just that are part of this kind of take economy. Yeah, I mean, it's it makes total sense for them to be disaggregated and, and you know, um, shifted into this economy of sort of power law distributions where you don't have this this sort of um you don't have this whole institutional apparatus basically propping up this um largely trivial and insignificant enterprise but what what that um what this new model doesn't seem to have any answer for are the things that we actually value that those um that those institutions should be producing right which is basically um serious research and serious reporting, which I would say, you know, both universities and newspapers are already doing, you know, less and less of anyway, but, um, you know, whatever the new structures are that are kind of gradually forming, don't seem to offer any, any way of recovering what's, what's kind of already been lost in that area and may actually be accelerating its demise, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that much about the media from the inside. I don't know what's next. I know a lot about academia for, from the inside and I know a lot about the IDW from the inside and I don't know what's next for either of those either. Um, but in general, I sort of assume that things will get worse. Um, that's yeah. sort of how I've been operating for a few years. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, um, you know, my assumption is that academia will, the processes will get worse and the activism will get worse and media, the reporting will get worse and the politicization will get worse. And within the IDW, uh, there will be no grand like liberal uh, exposition and the the Rufo types will continue to, to gain ground. 
Um, so that's, <laughs> that's, maybe that's, that's the, my expectations <clears throat> at the moment. Maybe that's the grim note we should uh, end on, you know, just <clears throat> be, be harshly realistic for people. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, I always like to end these uh, conversations on a real downer note just to, yeah, uh, no, that's, that's yeah. completely appropriate. Yeah. So cool. Well, thanks so much. Uh, do you have anything to plug you'd like to uh, uh, you know, get people to no, check out? I have, a, I have a few things coming up, but I don't know when they're going to be. So, um no just you know follow me on twitter yeah follow over <laughs> on twitter and yeah watch this space and yeah. um well yeah i appreciate your taking the time it's been yeah, a, yeah. Been a fun of, conversation fun. yeah always good talking to you always good reading your stuff yeah likewise all right thanks so much yeah thank you